a bunch of trashy daydreams. So like when we were talking to Steven, there was a moment where he says something like this. Will the American fantasy of purifying violence ever dissolve upon contact with reality or will the illusion break into civil war? And I think that sentiment is really the cornerstone of what our entire conversation was because, you know, we had listened to a lot of older conversations that he had and who, who did he have a crazy conversation with? The craziest was Tim Pool. That that was insane. yeah. He had he had a conversation with Tim Pool, and he's just had a lot of like combative, talking head style interviews about this book, which is about five potential scenarios where America might engage in a civil war with itself. Another civil war, right? Yeah, another a new civil war. Which <laughs> it's funny because we also recorded this conversation. I'd say almost a month ago. So yet again, we're still kind of <laughs> combing through the backlog, but it was interesting to talk about an American civil war while at the time we Russia hadn't invaded the Ukraine. And now that we're putting it out in, I would say the second phase of this war. And I think whatever happens with this war, However it plays out, whatever the end game is, is going to determine which way America goes as we lurch into our own civil war. Either there's going to be more division and we're going to see one side is supporting China, one side is supporting Russia. Ukraine will take on its own like kind of weird proxy significance, or maybe it'll bring us all together in some sort of magical way that I don't actually see happening. But it is interesting to think that having a conversation about a civil war right before an actual war plays out, I feel like we hit like some sort of strange energy, some sort of crazy zeitgeist. And I was really happy that Steven was down to have a conversation about this topic that I, I know for a fact <laughs> is very different than a lot of the other interviews he's done with people that are just more interested in politics and the specifics of how a civil war might go down. You know, like Stephen said in the interview about this idea of, you know, what happens when a apocalyptic fantasy makes contact with reality. It seems like we're seeing mm -hmm. that in a really strange way now, because on the one hand, it feels more real you know, sad to say then, you know, something like even the invasion of Iraq, which killed so far at least many more people, right? But the way people are experiencing this, you know, which has a lot to do with kind of Eurocentrism and, and racism, right? But it, right. people are experiencing this as more real, I think. Yet at the same time, it's being filtered through just like an endlessly complex series of almost like surreal technologies. And, and I think, you know, Stephen says this in the, in the discussion too, in a way that's part of the war. Like it would be kind of a mistake to say that the war is one thing and then the discussion of the war is something else, right? It seems like all of these things, I mean, obviously it makes a big difference if you're being bombed or not, like I don't want to diminish that, but the way in which wars are fought seem increasingly to involve extremely uh, like mentally deranging technological tools that involve the whole world, right? Not just the people on the ground. 
even though obviously the people on the ground are the most affected. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with like how America understands itself, you know, understands its role in this conflict, right? Because you have one side saying, uh, you know, America needs to do more and we should actually establish, you know, a no-fly zone or we should actually invade, which seems like it's going to trigger a, a nuclear response. And then you have the other side, you know, much more critical of the narrative saying, you know, America is already too involved. Other than like, we may have armed a lot of these Nazis in, in right. 2014 and, you know, who knows, but like that narrative is certainly there. And it's like switched because now I, I would say it's the left saying there should be no fly zone, that we should be doing more, that we should be helping. And it's the right that's saying, oh, this isn't our business. Biden had some shady dealings there. Like we shouldn't get involved. Like, do you have a better read on that? Does that seem like how it's playing out over here? I think there's an increasingly undifferentiated center that's like most politicians and most media. And then you have these increasingly vocal fringes of like the far left and the far right. And in a strange way, the center is more coherent and like whether you're a Republican or a Democrat is less distinct if you're within that kind of centrist consensus. And then on the left and right, in a strange way, those kind of extreme voices are also growing more similar to each other. Right. So you have people on the far right who are who either just overtly love Putin, <laughs> which is one thing, or or who, you know, hate Biden or whatever. But then you also have people on the far left who are just extremely anti-imperialist and are just like the US shouldn't be meddling in anything. Right. Which sort of ends up supporting people like Putin and, and Xi out of a sense that America is worse, which, you know, you, you can argue either way. Right. But I think like that that's the way those those um sides break down much more than a clear like left right th the way we imagine it used to be right yeah yeah i mean i think this is a great place to kind of start segueing into the actual interview but before we do that i just want to like introduce our guest Stephen marsh who is a novelist essayist and cultural commentator he's the author of half a dozen books including the unmade bed the messy truth about men and women in the 21st century and The Hunger of the Wolf. And in the book that we're discussing, it's called The Next Civil War. And in it, Stephen takes this fiercely divided America that we're talking about and imagines five chilling scenarios that would lead to America's collapse. And he's based all of this on these in-depth interviews that he's done with all sorts of experts. Everybody that he talks to in a book is either like a civil war scholar, a military leader, a law enforcement official, he speaks to Secret Service agents. He has an especially chilling chapter where he talks to an agricultural specialist that we get into. In the book, Stephen predicts a very terrifying future collapse that many of us don't want to see. But as David and I are discovering through this conversation, it is beginning to happen before our eyes. So I, I, I'm really curious how this conversation is going to feel now since we recorded this almost a month ago and how it's going to age into the future but i think it's a i think it's really worth listening to and steven really i think this was a very different interview for him than what he's used to doing but i was really happy with where he was willing to go with our dialogue and thinking about this scenario and his book i think we also get into not, not just american politics and history but something about the american spirit you know, and what makes it worth saving, you know, sort of like the, the danger that it puts itself in through fetishizing violence or through refusing to 
agree on any common legitimacy, but also, you know, why it has this kind of churn and foment and aliveness or liveliness that's different from the more, you know, sober and reasonable governance of a place like Canada, you know, as, as Stephen describes it, right? And sort of why this doubly secessionist nation, right, that first seceded from Europe and then tried to secede from itself, right, has this quality of, you know, a kind of mania that produces greatness. You know, and last week when I was on vacation, I read um, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, and which is totally about all these conundrums. And it opens with this quote that I just thought was absolutely perfect for this discussion. He was talking about the West and the way the sort of like Wild West turns into the settled West, right? Which a lot of McMurtry's books are about. But it opens with this quote where it says, all of America lies at the end of the wilderness road and our past is not a dead past, but still lives in us. Our forefathers had civilization inside themselves, the wild outside. We live in the civilization they created, but within us, the wilderness still lingers. What they dreamed, we live, and what they lived, we dream. Right. And when I read that and thought back on this interview, it, that just seems so apt in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, we don't want to see a civil war happen, obviously. And there's, you know, a lot to be said for making our politics more sane, obviously. But on the other hand, I think there is this deep longing for wildness, you know, and, and for something that's not civilized and not owned, you know, and not, pri not privatized and not turned into another country in the world, right? Like, you know, we can mock our own exceptionalism and it sort of deserves to be mocked in some ways, but I do think there's something like innately special about it still that almost like survives that mockery, right? And there's still some yearning for you know, transcendence or freedom in a sort of non-ironic sense that the real crux of this conversation is like, can that survive without civil war? You know, is civil war just the price you pay for that and there's no other way? And that means you either accept that you have a civil war or you accept that you can never have that wildness any anymore and ever again. Or, you know, the thing that we're really hoping for, obviously, and trying to imagine could be possible is like, can you keep that feeling of wildness alive without paying that ultimate price for it? Well, let's get into the wild. Here's our conversation with Stephen Marsh. And yeah, speaking of manic energy, I have to say, David and I have both read your book and we've also listened to a lot of interviews you gave uh, on various podcasts. And I really appreciate that you court both the left and the right. But I have to say <laughs> something about, I guess it must be the topic of the book and the way that different guests react to you and the material gave me like this incredible anxiety. So I, I wonder how, what, what has about been- me? No, just about the way that the left and the right engage with the topic. It really seems oh, yeah. to like ignite some people in different ways that reading the book, it didn't seem like it was that kind of book to me. So I, I am curious, what is the biggest difference between how both sides have perceived the material? That's a really interesting question. I mean, um, I, I would say 
for the left, I think this kind the, the the state of crisis kind of emerges as news. Like for them, it's like the possibility of a civil war is really something new to be considered. And the possibility of secession is like, this is just an idea that's kind of just occurred to them. Whereas for the right, of course, they've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. And I mean, uh, you know, it's been a mainstay of talk radio on the right for a long time. And so for them, it's more of a question of uh, who's going to win. And, you know, even some of the people like Newsmax and so on were like, do you think it's a good idea that there's a, that a civil war is coming? And of course, you know, like to me, it's like, well, you know, 600,000 people died in the first one, like South Carolina lost a quarter of its male population. Like, actually, there's not a lot much worse that can happen in this world than for you to have a civil war. Um, so, yeah, the, I, I would say that the, there, there's a huge gap between the uh between those two two things and uh yeah the two sides are, are very very different just for the listeners tell us how this book came to be because it is a work of creative speculative nonfiction. so i do wonder like what was your art artistic intent here well i went to the trump inauguration in 2016 and that was sort of had a very fall of Rome vibe, like, mm. you know, like I'm standing on a limousine at one point and then the limousine's on fire. And then I'm sort of walking along with these anarchists and then I go buy cigarettes and suddenly all the anarchists have been arrested. And so it's <laughs> uh, like, and, and then, you know, there's, there's people are giving pot away for free on the streets, but other parts of Washington are federal land. So it's illegal there. So, I mean, it just felt very, very, very chaotic. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to spend the next while figuring out what's re really gone wrong here with America. Um, and the, the, the way the book is written, I mean, I basically uh, took this idea from, um, do you know the, the movie series? The, it was a television movie called The Day After, which was, it was actually based on a piece of fiction written for Congress about what a nuclear attack would look like at, on, on, on Lawrence, Kansas. And, um, and so she just, or the writer of that took the, took the science behind nu what, a, what a nuclear strike would look like, which was very well established, and just sort of get it, get, got it in a fictional setting to make it look, to make it feel like how it would feel and make you understand that, like, you know, there are real stakes here. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to do sort of exactly that same thing, but with uh, American, so, you know, the collapse of American political system. You think also, you know, going back to that, moment of the inauguration and mm -hmm. I guess it would be J January of 2017. Do you think that's the moment when the way that the two sides were out of phase with each other started to sync up? Because I feel like for the right, the idea that a civil war you know, would be necessary or would be coming led to the appeal of Trump in some way, right? Or that he played into that and sort of fanned the flames. Whereas for the left, the shock was that Trump emerged at all, right? That they kind of woke up from the you know, fantasy that nothing like that could happen, right? So it was like both of those moments coincided, but for almost opposite reasons. Yeah, the, I mean, I would say that a huge number of people on the left, probably the majority, are are still not aware of the danger that they are in. In my opinion, like, uh, like I, I think I I meet a lot of people on the on the left who sort of think that American institutions will ultimately triumph. And that, and that in some way this is going to work out. Um, like they'll, that they'll just bumble, you know, that America has been through hard times and they'll just bumble into, you know, new and better 
a new and better tomorrow. I, I really think that that is like, I, I do have hopes for America and they're, I'm not just making them up, but that, that particular hope I, I don't really share. So um, I, I don't know if we're the, the left and the right where they where the hyper-partisanship got so out of control. I think it would predate that to, to me. Um, like I, I would say that the, the it, it got where they the real sort of sense of collapse. You know, usually the the scholars that I talked to dated from about two thousand and eight. Like the housing crisis was really um, a, a major factor there. That makes a lot of sense, and and also yeah. like the first moment, not not in living memory, but in the sort of contemporary discourse where something really tangibly went wrong that a lot of people felt and that was dealt with in a way that almost everyone viewed as like completely corrupt and inept. Yeah, or just that it, that it was a sense that this, that I mean, 2008 was really the moment because it was also the moment of the surge in Iraq. And it was uh, like, it was like, okay, America as a beneficent angel looking over the world uh, <laughs> doesn't really apply you know that like but that was that was really you know I, I think until 2008 you could like you laugh at it now but like you could actually have made that argument many many did you know you, you they didn't even necessarily make it just in America right um, but you know after 2008 that that really was no longer possible to believe in a in a sensible way. I think 2008 was the beginning of a lot of things of people's sense that they were losing control of their country. Um, you know, obviously the racist dimension of that would be the election of, of Barack Obama, which also, you know, was a threat to uh, the iconography of certain in-groups in the country. Right, and, and also hijacked genuine leftist hope. You know, I was in college in 2008 and I feel like the election of Obama, you know, that first time in 2008 was like the one moment of genuine hope and excitement and yeah. like generational. And then it just curdled and it was like, okay, this isn't, you know, not, nothing's going to change now either. Right. And it became this like, yeah, I mean, the system already uh, by that point, I mean, like, I don't blame Obama for that at all, but like the system already by that point had essentially, you know, it becomes so sclerotic that enacting policy was, you know, it, like borderline impossible. I mean, he, I, I think the healthcare policies that he made were, were like in the context of the collapsing system, hugely um, a, a huge achievement, but of course, much too small and much too late. Totally. And I feel like in a strange way, Obama and Trump, even though they were presented as opposites and were in a lot of dimensions, actually had a similar energy of like having this kind of populist appeal but then having a kind of discourse where they acted like they were sort of defending the people against the government even though they were the government right and like that contradiction has right. only gotten more absurd <laughs> right. well i mean i i would say like you know i think the the point of the book to a large extent is that the the horse race dimensions of politics in the United States are increasingly negligible. I mean, one thing that I think is really hard for a lot of people on the left to accept is like my my contention that um, if Hillary was elected in in 2016, everything in this book would be exactly the same. Um, like I, I I really think that Trump is really very little more than a symptom uh, of of the crisis, and you know, in the same by the same token, like like it's very easy to blame obama and like for but you know he he was not in a system where he could do what he wants like he he did not have the liberty he did not have the mobility of action that say a prime minister in a in a parliamentary democracy has he just he just doesn't 
It's funny because everyone thinks that the president is like the most powerful human being on earth. And I guess that is true. But on the other hand, they're incredibly circumscribed, right? Like they, they, there's really, they're, 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 the, the, the limits on what they can do is actually quite, quite intense. Right. And, and maybe like their power is increasingly symbolic. Like it's almost this bifurcation of image and reality where the more we focus on the power of the image for good or ill, the more we deny the reality that whatever is like actually causing things to, you know, yeah. either, de either degrade or actively approach a precipice, like has almost nothing to do with that. I forget the name of the guy. He was the guy who wrote, he was, he was actually Prince Harry's tutor and Prince William's tutor. And then he became a conservative MP in England. And he, he wrote a really fascinating essay where he said that the thing that people don't understand is that nobody's in power anymore. Right. Like you, you, you go around blaming Tony Blair or you blame Boris Johnson, but like they, he said, I've been in politics. He said, the only thing I ever achieved in politics was I put a, an elevator in the subway at my, in my, in my writing. Right. Like that, that was my, that was, that was what I did because like, like increasingly power itself, like certainly Trump does not feel like he was the master of the world when he was president. And, and, you know, certainly neither would Obama. Um, and, and it's funny because we live in such a conspiracy minded age, but like the, the, the funny thing is like, there's no, there, like, there's not even anyone in power. <laughs> like, like, never mind the power behind the power. There's act, like the, the, the sense of, of government itself is framed. Yeah. Right. And it's almost like if the Democrats are becoming the party that champions institutions, but they're also trying to change the fabric and intent of them while you have the right and the Republicans who are less invested in the institutions, but they also want more rules and to become the enforcers of them. So it almost feels like there's something inherently self-defeating about this impasse that we're at, that it almost seems like we've come to a point where there can only be more internal breakdown if we keep functioning on this logic. Well, that, that would definitely be the case in my book. I, I am convinced of it. Um, you know, like, I don't, I don't think like it, the, the problem here is not really even with the people. Um, the problem is with the system, which is just simply decrepit. Like it's not it, like it's it, it was a very great system. Like, it, you know, it, it was a work of true genius, uh, the, the U.S. Constitution. But it's the it's the Constitution of 250 years ago, nearly. And, you know, Jefferson himself said that no Constitution should last longer than 19 years. Otherwise, you are making a contract with the dead which was invalid. And like, I, I think, you know, increasingly the constitution resembles this ghostly document that's worshiped, you know, for the sake of its legacy, but does not really have the, um, it, it's not capable of representing the, the will of the people in, in, in practical politics, which of course was the great genius of the United States, that it, it organized government around people rather than around, you know, God or like the, these fantasies of, of kings, right? Um, like, and, and, and that, that way has been lost. But do you also think that there's something about in American culture that is inherently violent and that the things Americans desire 
are becoming unattainable. So there's always this pervasive feeling of inadequacy, fear, and resentment towards everything and everyone that gets in the way of a goal that most likely can never be achieved, that having this kind of mindset will just keep pushing people to the brink of some sort of civil war, whether it be a, a proxy war or it be like actual fighting on the streets. Yeah, I mean, you know, like it, it, it's a complex cascading system. I mean, that's the the technical language. So that just means like a lot of things are happening at once and they feed into each other. So, I mean, you have obviously have inequality at this level that's totally unprecedented um, in American history, uh, never never been seen before. And that that creates, you have hyper-partisanship in which, you know, you have it, essentially the electoral politics works by loathing. Like you can't, you can't really win by, proposing something you have to have an enemy to defeat um and and that becomes really the sole focus of things um i i, I do feel i mean it's maybe that i'm a canadian but like the the policy the fact that no one can enact policy um like that that, that it becomes increasingly difficult to do no matter who is in power um that just seems to me it, it creates a lot of problems because when you can't create actual change through your government that's when you start to look at other ways and those ways tend to be violent. So as for the cultural questions, like, you know, I only put in the book, the stuff that I really felt I knew, you know, mm -hmm. and that I could show like with models and with really good research. So like the, the cultural questions are kind of too broad because I think the situation is so scary that you really have to focus on what is absolutely clear. Right. And um, so I didn't really focus on any of the cultural stuff, but I would say lots of cultures are violent. Cultures like Brazil are very violent without necessarily heading towards a civil war, right? Uh, like, and, 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 you know, there is this messianic concept of freedom that's emerging in America uh, among anti-government patriots where, you know, paying property taxes is considered a form of slavery, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, but but like that's that's pretty new to me. Like that that emerges really from two thousand and eight. Before then, it's pretty marginal, and its movement to the mainstream is is tied to pretty to me pretty clear demographic and economic changes. I wonder if one aspect of, about America too is that you know it is violent, you know, like Brazil or anywhere else, but also that it has this messianic quality of you know, redemption through violence, right? Or, you know, an origin story that's now tied up with Westerns and, you know, different kinds of adventures that are always about violence enacting legitimacy. And it makes me wonder, yeah, if, you know, what no you were doubt. saying before about like the ghost constitution, that, that really interests me is this feeling of, you know, something we've talked about on the show before is this idea of being in a new Gothic age or being in kind of an undead moment in history where it feels like, things are both spiraling out of control, but also grinding to a halt, right? Or that we're kind of propping yeah. up de dead institutions, which relates to the conspiracy idea that, you know, no one is who they seem to be, or no one's really in control or someone else is in, you know, and all that kind of stuff comes from Absolutely. this feeling, I think, that uh, everything is rotted from within. And there is the fantasy that violence would be, you know, the spark or, you know, watering the tree with, with blood and all of that. But, you know, how yep. do those ideas relate to, to the way you've been thinking about it. This is like, as an outside observer, this is of course, one of the most fascinating things about the United States. The very first book published in America was a work of eschatology. It was a, it was a work of uh, describing the end of the world. Um, 
But you know, that entire description you gave where it's like these institutions are dead and, and zombie institutions and we're propping them up and it, but a violent change is coming. Like that is the subject of Joan Didion's The White Album, right? Like that sense of apocalyptic violence uh, in, in Los Angeles in the 1960s. Like finally the dread broke, right? <laughs> My point really is that there's always been that kind of dread. Like there's there like like that dread is certainly present in I mean in the 1850s it was totally right in the 1960s it was totally right I mean you you have um, that that's kind of a really I would say almost a commonality in America so so normalized that like if you you can find it in every periods both the periods that are leading to civil war like in the 1850s and so on and periods that aren't like 1970 for instance but um not that i disagree with you right like obviously america has this revolutionary past it obviously has this worship of violence i i mean just to put it in the in the in the clearest the most obvious possible terms like there are 400 million guns in the united states and my attempt to get a relatively stable number of of ammunition from any source was basically impossible like n nobody knows uh, how many bullets there are in the United States. Um, one estimate has a trillion rounds, right? I mean, and that's a, that's a, like, it's not reliable, but it's certainly from a decent source. So there may be a trillion bullets in the United States as we're speaking this. That, that, is, a, that is a high uh, tolerance for violence, right? That, that's, a, that's a large amount of faith in, in, in machinery of death. Um, but I don't know, I mean, like, how that plays into the current situation is really hard to say because you know there's there's 2008 which is an origin point there's also 1865 and 1876 as origin points the end of reconstruction and the end of the civil like did the civil war ever end R really i mean i think that's that's one way of seeing the stuff that i'm talking about in my book and then another way is to see that like the the, the arguments building the constitution the arguments around the funding fathers were exactly about how to reconcile the irreconcilable and they and and you know they thought somebody else would work it out in the future but really nobody did you know and it, it was stuff that was not about which there could be no compromise i.e the humanity of of african americans right and so whether this violent apocalyptic mentality dates from 2008 or from 1876 or from 1865 or from 1776 is unclear but you're definitely right that it's there it's like a, sto a stone skipping over the history of the country and i think also like the excitement you know from this eschatological point of view that it would happen here you know like you see that in mormonism you right. see it i guess in scientology you certainly see it throughout literature and, and american art that you know we would be you know, there would be the new Jerusalem, right? Or like the, the place where the world would finally end or maybe yes. at the same time resolve into its like perfect form. You know, there's this kind of narcissistic, but also very romantic oh, yeah. idea that it will happen here, right? You know, you see that in Moby Dick, for example. Yeah, I mean, yes. And, and like probably, I mean, I think you see it in Philip Roth. Like, I think you see it in all great American writing, really. But like, you know, there is definitely... Like, I remember when I, I covered the 2015 election in Canada, where Trudeau won, and then I immediately went for the Guardian across the border and attended a Trump rally and a Sanders rally uh, within three days of each other in Iowa. 
And the difference when you like when you're in a, a, an election in Canada is so boring. Like th th like this is like a, 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 a debate, a prime ministerial debate is like this. Sir, we need to debate, devote $248 million to education funding this year. No, you're crazy. We, we can only do 216 million. And they fight about numbers that you don't understand. And it, it's like it, it's like professors fighting. Um, then you go to America and it's God. And it's like the way Bernie Sanders says socialism, it, like it's like a religious movement for him. Whereas to me, like in Canada, socialism is just like one option among others for for the for for the, a, a political you know strategy. So yeah, there's definitely this this grandeur to American politics, which kind of removes it from policy itself. You know, like it, it kind of removes it from the business of actually governing people. It feels very salient when you talk about it that way. You know, obviously, endless talk today about Ukraine and Russia and stuff, but the sense that right. America and Russia are these kind of like dark doubles of each other because they each are these like vast territories bordering Europe, so to speak. And the idea mm -hmm. that something like socialism, you know, if you take it back to Marx, would be this like very specific and somewhat doctrinaire, you know, professorial idea generated, you know, from like a German point of view. But then there's that great line in um, Brothers Karamazov where one of the brothers says, you know, everything that is a theory in Europe will eventually become a practice in Russia. <laughs> right. And in America, yeah. I think it's the same, right? That we want the messianic, we want to be saved, whether it's by socialism or by Jesus or by, you know, revolution or whatever. Well, you right? think of your, you, you think of politics in a completely different way. Like the, the idea of your country as a shining city on the hill and your president as an icon for the world like, for me, like my, what what I do turn to politics for is services. Like, like th that's how I think of it. Like, I don't think of it as representing my own self. Like, I think of it as like a like I'm a Canadian and I'm a proud Canadian and so on. But like, the, what the government does is really um, like come up with like their bureaucracy fundamentally, and the prime minister is just a servant. Like, he's not better than me. Like he isn't like he's just a, he's just a servant of the crown and he happens to be the most important one and that's it right whereas in america like the pre, like the presidential iconography is so i mean that's why presidents keep being assassinated because they have so much meaning in them and similarly i think you think of uh, like of um you know of policy as like as again as iconography right where where you know policy questions like outcomes which are which are what you know most governments in the world focus on, almost are don't matter. They they, they almost like are, aren't they don't count. It's like what is the right thing to do, you know? And it's just a very different governmental framework, really. Yeah, it's almost like might be going too far out on a limb here, but it's it's interesting that for a country whose one of their main exports is illusion, has yes, completely indeed. immersed itself in this fake world while simultaneously now advertising for the metaverse and creating another fake world within that. And then you have politicians like Trump, who, at least for me, you know, somebody that was like a child in the 80s is a TV character come to life. Yes. And I think he both speaks to the, uh, to the elite, but he also speaks to the, to the fat guy on the couch, to the guy in cosplay, to the guy that wants civil war, to all the people that envision reenacting some sort of rebirth through either a form of digital heroism 
or through actual bloodshed, which I think is going to ultimately be the nexus of all of this lack of policy, fantasy, and the paranoia is just such a huge part of it as well. Because I think for, for a country to be this paranoid, you're imagining that there is an end that there is something beyond right. the dread that you're going to get to it and you're going to find it. And it just adds to the, the mythic parable that the country seems to be telling itself about its own identity. And I just don't know where does that end, if anywhere. Well, one hope that I have genuinely is that, uh, is that people realize how horrible political violence is before it gets out of control. I mean, I don't think, I don't think anyone really wants to live that way. I, I genuinely don't. I think um, I, I think the appetite for political violence it, as a fantasy is very intense. But then when, when people actually see what this is, how it works, like they, that they will not want anything to do with it and try and get out of, you know, try and figure out a way out as quickly as possible. Um, but that's, you know, all of that, what you're describing is essentially a love of violence. Right, and if you love something, you're gonna get it. Um, like, if that's what you want, if that's what you're imagining, yes. And like, you know, I, I think things have gotten to such a like. I go on shows and I hear intelligent people talk, and like, they have these conceptions of freedom that I just don't like. I, I literally don't even register. Like what? To me, taxation is not a form of enslavement. Like, taxation is a like every. Every human being in the world has paid taxes, except kings, forever, <laughs> right? Like it's like that. that that's we're never ever escaping taxation. Like it's not you're, you're, the, the idea that you could live in a world without taxes um, is is just insane. And you 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 hear people honestly talk about any form of taxation at all being government ownership of your property, um, and like. And that, and that's that, that that's very common. And then, of course, like the explicitly racist stuff, which you know I certainly saw plenty of, um, and which I also found terrifying. Um, not really because of the sort of, you know, oathkeeper, etc., kind of racism, but like you know, I met like Nazis with law degrees that you ask them like, how are we going to build? How are you going to build your white ethno state? And they say, um, we're going to model our constitution on Japan, like. You know, like which is much weird scarier. sense of multicultural inspiration there. No, but but Japan is like such a uniculture, right? I mean, I can True. see why it, it inspires. Well, Nazis, they literally, right? yeah. They, I mean, they have and they, and Japan were Nazis in, in a certain yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, they they, they they have they have ethnically based citizenship, right? Like you have to be ethnically Japanese to be a citizen, I, as I understand it, except in some uh, uh, some very strange cases. But I'm probably getting that wrong. I don't mean to offend anyone. But um, the I like. The point here is that, like, you're seeing um, real atavistic uh, political violent tendencies among super educated people who are prepared for conflict in a way that, you know, no one, no one opposed to civil rights in the 60s was that prepared. Right. And that, I find that really genuinely pretty terrifying. Like that, that there, there were only a few things in this book that really, really kept me up at night. But you know, meeting meeting really well-spoken, soft-spoken people who want a white ethno state and have law degrees. You know, that was that was not that was not peaceful making. Well, speaking of like what kept you up at night, what was I, I'm just so curious to know, like what was the darkest aspect of contemporary American society that you discovered while writing this book? 
Well, I, I mean, I actually get along pretty well with white power people and with um, like, I, like I can, if we eat a meal together, we all get along very well. So I never found those guys um, very scary. But it did seem like they were courting you by the way, as a journalist. Well, well, I would often not tell them I was a journalist, but um, like, uh, you know, there were places where you go, where if you say you're a journalist, it's like, you know, that you're automatically the enemy. You can't, you can't talk to anyone in that way. But, mm-hmm. uh, but, but the, um, no, I, I didn't feel, well, they are courting you because they're part of a, they're part of like a, what they felt like honestly was like weekend <coughs> modeling kit people. Like people who play bridge intensely on the, a hobby. Yeah, cosplay people. Cosplay people, yeah. Like, they, like very intense cosplay people. Um, and so, they're in person, I didn't find them frightening. I mean, when you read what they do and you and you know who they are, and I mean, of course, they're all armed to the teeth too. But you know, I don't find that particularly scary either. But so, it was the guy who talked about corn, Jerry from the USDA, where he just mm-hmm. described like the corn system and the vulnerability of the corn system. And I mean, he was just like, I mean, he's just a USDA guy who he's a farm boy from Ames, Iowa, who is a super expert on corn and goes around lecturing American farmers on how to increase their corn yields. Um, and, you know, he's really scared. Like he's really he, he really thinks that the corn like there's going to be more 2012s and that the and that, you know, cheap food will be a thing of the past. And you know, if cheap food is a thing of the past, we're in a, we're in a very different world than the one we live in right now. Very different. And do you think that like a kind of external or, you know, natural shock, like uh, depletion of food resources or water resources is sort of the line between cosplay and reality or, you know, couch potatoes and reality. Cause I think like in the mythic sense, you know, Americans love violence, but they really love to watch violence, right. And to imagine themselves committing violence but i feel like also americans are not by and large like extremely brave you know nowadays right like americans mostly want to see things as well, I, I wouldn't say that they're plenty well, brave, brave physically americans. not in the sense of wanting well, most americans that don't, either. don't some, want to kill each other really? in person I've, I've met some pretty tough americans man i mean i wouldn't i i would not i would not describe americans as, as really soft or, or oh. oh no definitely oh god I, I, but, as an american i think they're the softest people in the world Oh, no, no, no. I mean, you've got all of Europe to contend with for starters, but um, <laughs> what were we talking about before I caught on to this unfortunate tangent? About well, just this question. <laughs> right, right. We'll have a, weak, a weakness contest. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we all like lose the arm wrestling match. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but this thing of, you know, because it seems like on the one hand, you can have this sort of you know, message board ethnostate stuff that like could become real, but exists in this kind oh. of realm of discourse. But the thing is like, what makes it tangibly real? Do you think it's like, that's when the food runs out? Like that's the point. Well, where I would say one thing Americans genuinely do have that I can't quite figure out is an ability to overcome reality in a way that doesn't really happen anywhere else. So like for gun control, gun control is a really perfect instance. So, you know, in Canada, 50% of households own guns. We're, we, we, we have a lot of guns here. Um, countries like Australia, they have a lot of guns. Settler, you know, settler colonial pasts, they tend to have a lot of guns. Um, 
both of Canada and Australia had a massive school shooting that led to basically no assault weapons being available to people. Um, like there were, everyone had their fantasies, but then when we saw like, oh, when, and every, like everyone was on board, conservatives, liberals, every, like it was just like when people saw like, okay, you know, I mean, to me, like Newton, Newtown is like, if you can pretend that those people were pretend, were acting, the parents of those children were actors, there's literally nothing you can't make up. Right, like you'll you'll be able to overcome any any mere uh, <laughs> pro, you know accident of reality. Uh, so yeah, like I I do think there's just an unbelievable way that uh, you know, you know like January sixth within twelve hours was uh, divided along partisan lines. Right, like when when you when I see when when you see like the minute of silence for the guy who was shot defending the physical security of the Senate and only Democrats are showing up. I mean, that's genuinely shocking to me, even after I've done all this book, that you've done all this stuff for this book. Like that man was defending your personal physical security and the institution you're in. And you can't, you're so divided. You can't even agree to, to praise him, to give him a, a free minute of silence. I mean, the division, the divisiveness overcomes reality instantly in the United States. Like, that's why, it, you know, Americans are not going to come to their senses. There's not going to be some event like a larger January 6th, which is going to be like, oh, well, we have to get out of this mess. That, that I don't think is going to happen. Right. Do you think it's almost possible, just uh, on that thread, that like there could be a civil war that we wouldn't even agree was happening? Like, maybe that is already kind of what's happening, but like there would well, be no I mean, point at which people would say, okay, we're having a civil war. The term that I use is um, diathetical struggle. That's what T.E. Lawrence called it. But um, Jizaya, Jeff Jizaya wrote a really interesting article about how uh, about what he called mimetic struggle, which is like it, essentially the information about the war becomes the the struggle, which you can already see in the United States. Like the the the, the civil war that I imagine here is not blue and gray on different over, fighting over territories. It's uh, it's a war over the meaning of America, um, you know, fought with political violence as a tool of spectacle, right? So, and and that's exactly what what happens in sectarian conflicts all over the world. It, like it, it, the violence becomes less powerful than the than the spectacle of its own enactment. And yeah, that like I I think you would have you would definitely have a division on who could call themselves America. Like whether you, you could avoid pretending it was a war or not would, would maybe be harder when you get up to the numbers like a thousand deaths a year. But yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it could happen. Like may, that, that doesn't seem to me unlikely at all. Well, especially now that we're at this moment where we might be going to war with Russia, we have our proxy set up. And it, while reading your book, one of the main things that came to my mind was that anytime a country perceives a foreign power meddling in their system is when a civil war breaks out. It's like they're always about a sense of national identity, and it's crucial that one side sees the other side as foreign. And this is like goes back mm -hmm. to the Bosnian War, where you had NATO versus the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Yep. Once again, you had U.S. and Russia, and now we have Ukraine once again with U.S. and Russia. But there also seems like and this is all very <laughs> hypothetical, obviously, but it seems like mm -hmm. back here, 
if we start to see one side as the side that is supporting Russia, that would become the proxy and that could possibly be the kindling that would set us into a new civil war. I don't know. I mean, I like the, the I have my own that, that's you could definitely write your own dispatch from the book with that and you could back it up. Um, I, I just didn't really do that. I mean, I think the Russian conflict, I, I think it, it tends to when foreign invaders tend to come in, that tends to unify somewhat. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, like, you know, like obviously, uh, Bill Clinton was in a lot of political trouble when the Bosnian war started out and it was very unifying. His numbers went right up. I mean, when George W. Bush, when George H. W. Bush was president, I think he had, he had something like a 92% approval rating at the outbreak of the Iraq war. Um, You know, it tends to be, it tends to be quite unifying, but it, you might be right because the question is, has hyper-partisanship gotten to the point where it totally transcends any foreign policy consideration? I mean, it might have. I'm, I like. I can't say it hasn't, but I mean, you might be right. I'm just not sure it has gotten quite that far yet. Mm-hmm. Also, the thing if it's like a war over who's a real American. Well, that's already happening. Right. Yeah, and it's like part of yeah. the way it's it's uh, voiced is that each side sees the other as in league with a foreign power. Right. It's like the left sees the right, right as in league with Russia, and the right sees the left as in league with China. Right. Right. And I think that plays out all like in with Britain too in the Second World War, and and and, and also with isolationism generally, right? As a like we're not going to do anything in the world. That's what re, that's what Americanism is. But I I don't know how like the you know as Lincoln said in the in the epigrams of the book like um, America won't be destroyed from the I'm paraphrasing America won't be destroyed from the outside. It, it will be it will die by suicide or live for all time. Right. And like a foreign enemy will not break America. The, the, the question is, what are the internal contradictions? And, you know, already the hyperpartisanship numbers are transcend race. So like Republicans don't want their children to marry Democrats and they don't hire Democrats um, much more than like the, the, the racial divide in the United States on those two numbers and, and vice versa. You know, it goes both ways. So you are you are seeing a, a kind of foundational loathing emerges that, that emerging that transcends a lot of what you might call ordinary politics. Right. Do you think if the civil war happens and it becomes the end of America, is it truly the end or is it a phase that the country has to go through in order for it to be refounded, which might be a very like right leaning <laughs> assertion to make? Well, you know, France is in its fifth Republic, right? Like, like, I mean, I think you need a new constitution. Like, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think the idea of a second republic, a second American republic, is insane. I think it's, I like, it, it getting there seems almost impossible. Well, it does seem impossible, frankly. But in terms of like, is it, like, is a different America possible? I, I absolutely think it is, and I think if anyone can do it, it would be Americans because they have been, you know, reinvented themselves so many times, both, you know, personally and politically. So, yeah, like, I mean, civil wars tend to be very hard to recover from. I mean, I don't think you have, I don't think the United States has recovered from the first civil war properly uh, yet. But it had ushered the 20th century for us in some ways. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say 1876 did. 
uh, like the the end of Reconstruction really set the terms of the next sixty years. But to to me, but um, yeah, I mean it. Well, well, the effect of the Civil War was, I mean, the losses were so staggering. You know, like they, they when you think like two point five percent of the U.S. population died uh, just in just in battle. Like, never mind the diseases. Um, it, it, like, there's got to be an easier way to birth, you know, to birth a new politics. Like, it, it, it can't need to be that brutal. I love the line you have early in the book where I think it was a South Carolina senator in the lead up to the Civil War who was, I guess, was trying to say that he thought it wasn't going to happen, but he said he would drink all the blood that spilled. Yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, like, they, they really didn't, I mean, you know, it's incredible to think, but um, the, the North had to go to uh, Europe to buy rifles at the outbreak of the Civil War. Like they, they did not see it coming at all, right? Like they didn't, they, like no one, no one thought it was gonna happen. No one imagined it could happen. Like it was, like it was, and yet of course, in hindsight, like scholarly guides to the road to disunion. I mean, it's all very clear, right? It's like you have the nullification crisis, you have beating of Charles Sumner on the foot of the Senate. You have, you have people fighting duels over it at West Point. You have, and every time a new territory opens, you have to decide whether, you know, whether your whole country is a free country or a slave country. And the trends are apparent. You know, it's just that nobody wants to see it coming. Uh, nobody wants to see it coming. Who, who would? It's so horrible to look at. It's just making me think now, this idea that, you know, Americans are always in this in between state, like they're in a kind of limbo between both hoping to see the apocalypse, right? Or hoping for the culmination or the great awakening or whatever, and hoping that it doesn't happen, right? So in a sense, like the can is always kicked down the road where you can say, you know, in 1776, the question of slavery is not dealt with, right? So then 1860, you have to deal with it again. Then 1876, like you said, it's kind of, again, agree to disagree or sort of like that process ends there yep. then we have something like that again in the 60s we don't really deal with it then we have something like that again in 2008 we don't really deal with it i wonder if in a way the overarching question maybe about this idea of like a second republic is like what is america if not an endless present tense process that's always delaying the future. That's always saying, well, we can't work all this out yet because you know the paint isn't dry, right? Like what happens if we start to have this feeling now where it's like the paint is dry, like there's no frontier, there's nowhere else to go. There's no American project to be involved in. So it's like, are we gonna be you know, more like Canada in terms of just like finding a way to just live together in a kind of order? Or are we gonna right. try to invent some other like romantic and, and kind of apocalyptic and and uh, grandiose way of being, but is is there a way to do that that's not just massacre? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a Canadian, so we like Northrop Fry said a Canadian is an American who re rejects the revolution, um, and you know, like I think your description of because you're in this apocalyptic mode, you constantly kick the can down the line. Right, like you don't have to come to a policy decision because it's all going to be solved by the revelation in the end. So you you just keep and as you say, like the the, the three fifths provision in the Constitution was a totally ludicrous compromise on something that's not subject to compromise, i.e., a person's humanity. Um, it's kicked down the road until 1860. It's again kicked down the road at in, from 1876. It's kicked it's kicked down the road. I would say in the 30s as well. 
and and in the and then in the '60s and then now, and it's it, it's it's unsolved. And maybe I mean the thing is what what makes America so unbelievably great is it's it's unsolved nature, right? Like that that's why people move that's why the best creative stuff comes out of america that's why you get new religions and new whole new genres of music because it because it has this it has this like grand grandeur that's also like things are not the time is out of joint always you know like it's never it's never rectified so whether you can like that tension that america held that contradiction between between you know, by having disagreement as the basis of government rather than unity, but finding unity in that disagreement, like for that to be spoiled is a terrible loss. And I, I don't know how it could ever be replicated. Um, but, you know, as a Canadian, like, yeah, I would say like the, of the two options, like the apocalyptic glory or, you know, a decent quiet life, like I'm going to take a decent quiet life every time. Yeah, no, I like what you were just saying. And it, it makes me think that, you know, I'd heard you mention in a past interview that debate in America is toxic. But at the end of your book, you also mentioned that there's hope in American discourse. And I think there yeah. is truly something in the middle, which is either going to be a no-win situation or yeah. something more like David mentioned, where there will be an America 3.0 will come of it and will maybe I'm speaking as an American, but we will transcend to the next place, which will be less nonsensical and illusory than the one that we're currently in. God, I would love that. I mean, that would genuinely make me like, that would be, I, I love the sound of that. I <laughs> it's mean, the only that, way that we can all win. The, that would be the, <laughs> that would be the best case scenario for everyone. I mean, and, and like, I do have some hope that these fantasies of purifying violence will dissolve on contact with reality like um but but i don't but then I, I see no evidence of that like when i go and talk to people or like you know talk to the reactions about january 6th or anything like that like i don't see any evidence of of, of transcendence there um but yeah i mean i i think like the end of the book is a lot of different options for america i mean one i didn't consider is really America 2.0, but I guess when I said like a new constitutional convention or secession, that's basically saying a second republic. Um, and you know that that would, you know that would that would that those are the paths forward to me. Either like it's 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 like a marriage, right? It's like when you when a, when a marriage gets to the point the United States is in, you sit the kids down and you say like it's over, or you say or you find a way to make it new again in some other way. Like those are really your choices um, because it, it can't go on like this. I like that analogy. I feel like the one thing I learned about having relationships and being in one is that no one wins an argument. You just have to accept that <laughs> and right. move on knowing that there was no winner. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like the two point, right. the transcendent thing in that metaphor is like, can you somehow look at the friction in the marriage and discover a new form of romance from that that doesn't involve right. either divorce or just like grim, grimly bearing it until the kids grow up? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is that that kind of question, right? Like, I think that's like the the, the I think the questions that America faces, its political questions are quite large. Like, I, I think like who wins in 2022 um much less relevant 
right? Like the, 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 like the right has known for a long time, like these systems are non-functional. And that, I mean, and they, it's partly, you know, it's partly a grift, but it's also partly like they just don't have any faith in these institutions and the people they represent don't have any faith in these institutions. And I think it's now people on the left are starting to be like, okay, like, why exactly do we have faith in these institutions? You know, I mean, by the time you get to 2040, 50% of the country will control 85% of the Senate. Like, that's not democracy, right? Like, that's, that's, something, that's something that is sort of in between, you know? It's like in a gray area. And, I, like, I don't, think, I don't think people are going to accept the governmental order from a body that they, you know, have absolutely no faith represents the will of the people. Do you think yeah. the left becoming aware of that, you know, and stopping like panicking every time Trump, you know, says yeah. like dis disregards some kind of statute or, you know, stands on offends some some like tradition or something, is actually useful? Like on the one hand, you could say it's more cynical that they're losing faith. On the other hand, I wonder if it's kind of what we were talking about at the beginning. It's actually necessary oh, need to to not have faith in a dead system. They need to lose faith right now. Like, I mean, like, I know that sounds horrible, but like, they are, they're worshiping a dead document. Like they, like they are, they're, they're talking about ghosts and it makes a huge difference. Like the way, the way Joe Biden had to think about the filibuster, like uh. that kind of thinking is totally inappropriate at this moment in history. Like, it, like if you, if you need to stack the Supreme Court, you just do it because like the other side does not, the other side will do it in, in a, in a heartbeat. Like they've they've completely lost any sense of like the rules based order of government, and so yeah, I definitely think the left is playing with one hand tied behind their back because they have not recognized what they're dealing. With. Right, and which is like its own form of conservatism, right? Of just being stuck in the past of like this was the order that oh, makes yeah. sense to well, us, so I we mean, have to stick with this, right? I, I don't mean to offend anyone, but like the age of these people is also really troubling to me. Like where you have these real antiquity like like you know joe biden is at the end of something right like and, and and he's at the end of institutions that have nourished him and that he has loved his whole life in which he has seen valuable and unquestioned until he was about 70 right and so you know it's very hard for him to recognize what's actually going on in these institutions like he, he just has faith that they'll work out and i i, I just think that faith is really misplaced Right. No, it feels like a definite placeholder. You know, I feel like the yeah. emotional truth of the like illegitimacy of his presidency, like not the literal truth, but the emotional sense that like yeah. just, that he's not do he's that he's barely there. I feel like almost everyone feels that at this point. Uh, yeah. Well, what can he do? I mean, right. like like right. what can he what can he do? Like it's like it's not him. It's right. the presidency. Right. right. Like like and that's why it won't matter who's in next or in who's at, who's after. Like. The problem is that the Senate becomes less valid every year, right? And, and you're going to have a presidential election, you know, within our lifetime where a Republican loses the popular vote by 10 million votes and still wins, right? Like, that, that's going to, like, that's the crisis, you know, like not what Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted this week. Right. And I guess there's a, like, very atavistic, like, you know, reptile brain part of all of us that sees violence as the ultimate legitimacy, right? And the question is like, is there a form of legitimacy that isn't violent? That seems like the true question at the heart of all this. Yeah, I, I mean, 
I, I think when the Republican Party said that January 6th was legitimate political discourse, I mean, that's 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 textbook pre-Civil War behavior, right? Like that's like, like that's that's what happens in Chile. It's what happens in Colombia. Like it, it's what it's what happens all over Africa. Like that's and I, I'm not really convinced that American exceptionalism doesn't apply to these political realities. I mean. The, the notion of political violence is so anathema to me because, you know, anytime you see what happens when it starts, it just flames out of control so quickly. And it, it becomes so, it was so devastating, like just in such a uniquely horrific way, even in the history of warfare. Um, like it, it, it's really the worst thing that can happen to a place. So how, like, I, I think one part of this is like, there's the institutional rot, but one thing that really can be done is the FBI, which did set up a, a, a domestic terrorism unit three weeks ago, um, can take this much more seriously. And I think they are doing that. And I, I'm actually really encouraged by that because there are violent actors and they really need to be suppressed. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, I think on that note and on the note of let's lose faith to find a new order, <laughs> let's, uh, <laughs> let's end this conversation because I'm also 